Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the New Books Network today. We're going to be talking with W. Jeff Barnes, author of Mingo, a novel. How are you doing today? Great, thanks, Deidre. I hope you are. Doing great. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project? Uh, sure, and, and uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the chance to uh, speak with you today. Um, I've been a trial lawyer for the last 35 years, and in a recent discussion I had with a group about Mingo, someone asked me whether my experience as a litigator had informed how I approached the book, and I really hadn't thought about it much up to that point, but in reflection, I think it probably did because as a trial lawyer, we're trained to try to see the other side of the case that we're on in order to uh, provide our own client a good representation. We need to understand where the other side's coming from. And so um, <clears throat> I tried to do that with, with this book and try to show both sides of, of many issues. Um, and as one of the characters in Mingo said, no matter how thin a pancake may be, always remember it has two sides. And, and that's what I tried to do in Mingo. But in terms of, of this particular story and how I became uh, uh, interested in it, uh, it's in part because of my father's uh, connection to coal mining. He was born in Pocahontas, Virginia in 1919. Pocahontas is a small town on the West Virginia, Virginia border. And it was a coal boom town in the late 1800s. And his best friends, uh, were first-generation Americans of Italian and Hungarian descent whose parents had come to America, much like the Paduzzi's in the novel, looking for a better life for themselves and their families. And I was fascinated that he had these friends growing up that whose parents spoke very little bit, very little English. And it was so different than my upbringing uh, in a community where we only spoke English. And, um, and then as he got older and in my early years, uh, 
in the in the 60s and 70s, he tried to make a living mining coal. He was what, what we called a truck miner, truck operator. And uh, he and half dozen men uh, every day would go in and uh, mine coal seams that the, the large coal companies couldn't economically bind. And he'd come home every evening uh, covered in coal dust. And the, the, the probably the biggest reward he got for all those years of crawling around in coal seams too low to stand were bilateral knee replacements. Uh, and then the, the probably the most, uh, the biggest factor in me coming to this story was my childhood fascination with the Battle of Matewan that took place on the main street of Matewan in May of 1920, a year after my father was born. And I was fascinated that a gun battle could erupt on a main street in a town in 1920s America involving dozens of pro-union coal miners and uh, a handful of uh, 10 or 11 Baldwin Felt security agents. So uh, that's um, what drew me to the story. And I wanted to write a story that uh, dealt with brothers who end up on opposite sides of that shootout and explore how they got there, what led them there, what conflicts they uh, had to overcome, and then how did it resolve? So those those are the things that that led me to this particular story, and and I guess and I will find in conclusion about this, I'll say, in doing the research for the story, I discovered just a wealth of uh, compelling characters like Mother Jones and Sid Hatfield and Don Chafin, and events like the Bull Moose special attack on the Holly Grove tent camp and Sid Hatfield's execution and the. Uh, uh, Blair Mountain battle that uh, I thought provided the bones for a great story. So that's how I ended up writing Mingo. You begin the story with the funeral of Dirk Wood and Bossom's mother. Why was this central in telling the story? Well, we never meet Ma, as you say, it, uh, this book begins with her funeral, but throughout, she's um, her presence is felt, and it's clear that she was the glue that held their family together. Um, she brought her boys up in a religious household and instilled in them a, a strong worth act, work ethic and an abiding love of family, and I think a sense of duty to others. And her death in 1908 was the catalyst that, uh, uh, well, the catalyst for the divergent experiences that the two brothers, Derwood and Bascom, uh, <clears throat> had as they grew older and which ultimately um, led them to be on opposite sides of this mate one battle in 1920. And as she's dying, she uh, had her husband, who is referred to as Pa in the book, promise to send Derwood to Richmond to live with her cousin Grace and, and Grace's husband Walker. Uh, Walker was a uh, general counsel for a railroad in Richmond, and she knew that if, if she could get Durwood there, <clears throat> he would uh, it would get him out of a life of working in the coal mines and provide opportunities that he wouldn't otherwise have. Meanwhile, though, that meant that Bascom, who, who was 14 years old at the time, was going to be left behind uh, working in the mines with Pa. Now, once Dirkwood ended up in Virginia, tell us about his adjustments to the city life. Well, when he, he didn't want to go and his father told him it was just till things settled down. So he expected it was going to be just a quick, quick trip to Richmond and, and back to Mate One, West Virginia. Um, but uh, of course, that didn't turn out to be the case. But when he first arrived in Richmond, um, 
he had a uh, an encounter with a, a kid that we see throughout the uh, early part of the book named John Randolph. And uh, John Randolph uh, made fun of Durwood because he was from West Virginia. And if you remember in 1908, that wasn't that long uh, since the Civil War had concluded. And, and the sting of that defeat uh, was felt still pretty acutely by many people, including uh, this young John Randolph. And so he, he teased Bas uh, Durwood for being a Yankee and a hillbilly Yankee at that. And he made fun of his name. He made fun of his shoes. And so it was kind of a rough, rough beginning for Durwood. Um, he had an experience on his first day in school where he was asked to show the other classmates where West Virginia was on, a, on the globe. And <clears throat> coming from the uh, uh, rather uh, poor school that he came from, he had never even seen a globe. So he wasn't able to show them, show the people where, where West Virginia was because he didn't even know what the globe was, which of course elicited laughter from his classmates. So he had kind of a rocky start um, to his uh, beginning there in Richmond. But he fortunately had uh, folks there that, that helped him adjust. Uh, he had the abiding love of his, uh, his mother's cousin, Grace, whom he eventually referred to as Aunt Grace. And he also had help from three other folks, uh, Hattie, who was the African-American domestic uh, uh, worker in Grace and Walker's house, and um, she, of course, in, in 1908, Richmond was used to putting up with the racial slights that came with living uh, in, in Richmond or in the South at the turn of the century. And she told him a very, very important lesson early on, which was never to be ashamed of who he was or where he came from. <clears throat> and then uh, his best friend, Ben, who is a younger brother of his tormentor, John Randolph, was a kind, uh, understanding kid who just all he saw in Durwood was another friend. He didn't see him as an outsider or West Virginian or a hillbilly or a Yank. He just saw him as, an, as another kid. And, um, and then, of course, there was uh, Cap, who uh, was a uh, young boy about Durwood's age who grew up on the, quote, wrong side of the tracks. And he lived down near the coal yard where Durwood encountered him when Durwood went down to see where the coal trains were going, hoping that uh, he might uh, see in the coal might bring him a little bit closer to his brother and, and uh, father back in West Virginia. And Cap and his little uh, uh, ragamuffin friends befriended Durwood and helped make him you know, feel more at home than he uh, had otherwise because they reminded him of the kids he knew back in West Virginia. When Bossom arrived, he arrived as a freeloader. Tell us about that. Yeah, he, um, <clears throat> so when he left, well, he has an unfortunate incident in the mine back in West Virginia in um, 1912, where his mentor and friend is killed in a roof collapse. And uh, he decides that he's had it with the mines, he's gonna leave. Uh, West Virginia and the coal mines behind and he's going to make a fresh start in Richmond. So he hops a freight train. Now, keep in mind, he had money. He had saved up money from working in the coal mines and he had money to pay for a ticket. But he, of course, was uh, frugal and wanted to save his money. So he hops a freight train or hops a train. He's in a freight car and uh, he's sharing that car with a couple of, of uh, rail riders or hobos, as they were known. 
nice gentlemen. Uh, they arrive at the uh, train station in Richmond or the freight yard in Richmond, and they uh, they tell him to wait until it gets dark and then sneak off the train. But unfortunately, the railroad police were searching the train, and and they, lo and behold, they find Baskin. And in the process of him trying to escape, he gets knocked unconscious and learns that uh, later on that they've stolen most of his, the railroad police have stolen most of his possessions. And um, what saved him was a letter that he had in his pocket from Miss Grace. Uh, and the police captain, of course, realized who, uh, who Grace Walker was and <clears throat> summoned uh, or Grace Hopkins was and summoned her husband Walker to come down to the police station. And it was his connection to Walker, a prominent citizen that led to the charges against him uh, being dropped and, and for him being released from custody. And I think this sent uh, Baskin an important message and one that I'm not sure he particularly cared for, which was, it's not, a, it's not really who you are, but who you know that, uh, that matters, uh, at least in some circles. <clears throat> but uh, before he left the police station, he got a little bit of, uh, of satisfaction in taking the money that the, the uh, railroad police gave back under the guys that they'd gone back to the car and, and searched it and found the money, money there uh, to bail out the other two rail riders and, and get them out. So, uh, he, uh, like I say, he, he paid it forward. Now, Bossom had some adjustment to the big city of Virginia. Tell us about that and his um, connection with his brother. Yeah, he did. Um, yeah, he was older. He was 18 when he arrived in Richmond. He had uh, spent uh, about, by that time, he had been working in the coal mines for about five years. And um, he, of course, was much more aware of the inequities that he saw around him in Richmond and the differences between, uh, you know, life in Richmond versus life back in, uh, in West Virginia. And, you know, he, he had trouble adjusting to some things. For example, this, it's not who you know, or what, it's not who you are, but what you know that matters. One of the, one of the hurdles that he had to sort of overcome was the, the differences in, in, uh, the, the treatment of the races. Um, Hattie, who I think I mentioned earlier, was uh, a domestic in the uh, Grayson Walker's house. When they first meet, he, you know, he refers to her as ma'am, and she asks him to, to not do that. And he you know, asked why, and she just said, well, you know, it's not done here. And, and he, he didn't understand that. He said, well, where I come from, manners is manners. Um, so he, he had to adjust to that. And, and she, she very uh, kindly told him, look, I'll know you mean it, even if you're not saying it. And um, you know, there were other uh, things he had to get, get used to in terms of, again, the racial prejudice of the time. Um, <clears throat> he had an experience uh, where he is at a celebration in 1912, it was a, a celebration uh, in honor of Robert E. Lee. And um, <clears throat> it's when he meets the, the girl that becomes his girlfriend named Belle and Belle and her mother have a, a tent set up where they have food for the people who are at the celebration. And uh, Bascom sees a, a, a black gentleman struggling under some boxes of food and he rushes to help, help the man Bell's mother said, no, that's fine. He's got it. But Baskin 
goes ahead and does it. And um, uh, and the next day, Bell wants to know why he why he did that. And he he said, well, you know, obviously the man was struggling, looked like he could use a hand. And she said, well, uh, she pointed out the fact that he was he was African American, and and asked him, said, well, you know, I may have a lot of flaws, but poor vision isn't one of them. And and explained to her that she she said, well, you know, in Richmond, the first thing you see is, is race. And he said, well, down in the mines, what I've learned, I've wor- I worked with you know, African-Americans and whites and Italians and, hum- and uh, Hungarians and all sorts of people. And the only thing that matters is whether you can count on the man next to you. Um, so, you know, he had uh, some issues like that that he had to uh, adjust to. Uh, after he moved moved to Richmond, um, uh, even even the class distinctions where he and Durwood are going to go to the Forest Hill Amusement Park, and he invites along the Cap and his buddies, who, as I said, lived on the wrong side of the track, so to speak, and they told him they couldn't come, and he didn't understand why, and they said because they don't let people like us in there. It's for it's for the you know the wealthy people. So he struggled with, with those kinds of, of inequities as he saw them, um, you know, but again, he was, he was settling into Richmond with a new job, with a girlfriend and, and with his brother that he uh, so dearly loved. So he was trying to get over those, over those uh, uh, adjustment issues and, and uh, perhaps would have if things hadn't changed back home in West Virginia. What made him move back? Well, so in uh, uh, Christmas of, I believe, 1911, and, and, and I guess he had come to Richmond in 1911. I may have said 1912 earlier, but I believe it was 1911. And, and that Christmas, he learns of um, problems back home in West Virginia. It was the beginning of, of the first mine war. And um, he learns that his cousin, Sesco, and his family have been kicked out of their company-owned housing and were living in a tent camp that had been set up and was run by the union. It was a particularly cold winter. And when he learns about uh, uh, Sesco's uh, family and, and their problems, he learns that uh, Sesco's youngest child has died due to hunger or cold or, uh, you know, it didn't really matter to him, but because of these conditions that his, his child had died, and Bascom remembered what Sesco had said to Bascom at the mo- following the mother uh, the funeral of, of Bascom and Durwood's mother, which was in times of trouble, uh, family comes together. And so he, uh, again, um, I think uh, due to the strong influence of his mother and her uh, you know, belief in taking care of others, service to others, he felt that he needed to go back and try and help Sesco and his family and make sure they got through that, uh, that brutal winter in West Virginia. Um, and so despite how much he cared for Durwood and despite how much he by that time had uh, cared for, for Bell, he felt like he had to do it. Bell tried to talk him out of it. And, and he, as he explained to her, she had told him uh, earlier in their relationship that he was, uh, uh, what made him different from all the other boys she knew was that he was always looking to help people. And he told her that if he stayed in Richmond, knowing what he knew about what was going on back in West Virginia with these, uh, his cousin and these striking coal miners, that 
and he turned his back on them, that if he'd lose respect for himself, and even if she didn't lose her respect of him, that he'd end up in the bottle like his father. And so uh, he gave up his job, he gave up his, his girl, and, and at least temporarily he thought his brother to go back and, and help his family. Big businesses, unions, socialism. How did you deal with historical events at that time? Well, um, first of all, uh, you know, let me say that I think there's, a, there's been a failing of our educational system that so few people, and myself included, because I surely didn't know this, but uh, knew, know about the Battle of Blair Mountain. It was the largest armed insurrection in U.S. history and, uh, after the Civil War. And it uh, began in, right at the end of August of 1921 and went on for three or four days into the beginning of September. Um, and it was kicked off by the murder of Sid Hatfield. Sid Hatfield was the town police chief who was instrumental in the battle of Matewan a year earlier. And he was, uh, Sid Hatfield was a hero to the, to the union coal miners, pro-union coal miners. And he was on his way to a trial in, in uh, McDowell County and was basically executed as he walked up exterior steps to the courthouse. And so the miners felt like uh, they were they were not making any progress. They weren't being heard by the governor and, and by the coal companies. And so they marched on uh, towards Blair Mountain and, and their goal was to go over the mountain to get into Logan County to uh, liberate the their, their brethren who were languishing there in the jails for their pro-union activities and then go on over the mountain into uh, Mingo County and do the same thing. And 10,000 coal miners were on this march trying to get over the mountain and a raid on top of the mountain and dug in on top of the mountain there were about 3,000 state police, the Baldwin Felt security agents, various townspeople trying to prevent this from happening. So this is a very, I think, a very important event in American history. And, um, and it's seen through different lenses, but one of them ha uh, is sort of a political lens um, and it's sort of been billed as this was a you know, struggle in this particular battle between socialism and capitalism. And perhaps for, for many, it was. Uh, for example, what I've read about Mother Jones, who was sort of the patron saint to the, uh, to the coal miners at that time. She was a firebrand from uh, Ireland. She was in her 80s. Uh, she was a socialist and she was a committed socialist. <clears throat> Eugene Debs, who is... Um, certainly earlier in the uh, uh, a few presidential elections earlier was um, uh, a socialist candidate for president. He got a million votes in the 1912 election and that same election, a town in West Virginia called Eskdale uh, elected a solid uh, socialist ticket. So I think some people saw this as a struggle between socialism and capitalism. Um, and I think some of the coal miners in these remote parts of West Virginia felt like if they unionized, they allowed the union in, they would be at a competitive disadvantage because their coal mines were so remote and the cost of extracting coal and getting it to market cost so much. And so um, for some of them, they may have believed that socialism is at work. I think others saw it as a convenient boogeyman. Uh, but I will say that, you know, Bolshevik, uh, the Bolsheviks had seized control of Russia in 1917. And by this time in 19, uh, 2021, uh, they had made it known uh, that they wanted to export communism throughout the Western world. Uh, there's a 
course, a part of the book where Durwood is in Russia fighting with the uh, American Expeditionary Force and Ivan, the Russian interpreter who fought alongside him, uh, made it clear that the British feared the Bolsheviks more than they did the Kaiser's German army during World War I. So again, some saw it as, as, a, as a political battle, but to me, it seemed, uh, and to me, it seemed that for the rank and file uh, miners, the ones who were part of this 10,000 uh, man march, that um, they didn't so much care whether the politicians were Republican, Democrat, or Socialist. What they were looking for was for uh, fair wages, for an honest day's work, safe working conditions. Um, and for them, I don't, for the rank and file, I don't, I don't think it was a political issue. I think it was, it was strictly a they're trying to trying to make things better for themselves, um, and so <clears throat> for them it wasn't about overthrowing capitalism. It was just more meat and potato issues. Well, we're going to save the rest of the story to the readers because it is an excellent book. What message do you want the readers to come away with after reading this book? Um, I would say there are a couple of things. Uh, first, as I hope the readers. Of Mingo will want to learn more about the, the history of this important event uh, in, Amer in the American experience. I had a friend of a friend who read Mingo pre-publication, and she commented that had she encountered the mine wars in the, in the context of a history book, her eyes would have glazed over. Uh, but in the context of historical fiction, she found it accessible and interesting, and in turn was led to read more about it in uh, in history books, in history accountings. So I guess um, the first thing I would say is, uh, and I've heard this saying before, um, you know, if you want to learn history, read a history text. If you want to understand it, read historical fiction. Um, and, you know, the point being that, again, I hope folks will, will take this, if they take away from Mingo an interest in learning more about this um, sort of, uh, Experience, melting pot experience in American history that impacted uh, whites and blacks and immigrants and rich and poor and Republicans and Democrats and socialists, then uh, it, that, will be, that will be a good thing for me. I will have succeeded. And I guess the second thing is, is to always remember, as one of the characters uh, said in the book, every camp pancake, no matter how thin it is, has two sides. And it's a lesson that I need to be reminded of nearly every day. And, and it's just as important today, 100 years after the coal mine wars in Mingo, because it seems we continue to struggle along these same fault lines of race and class and capital and labor that Bascom and Durwood encountered uh, and dealt with in, in uh, Mingo. Well, what is the next project you're going to be working on? Well, uh, I'm still practicing law full time, so I haven't been able to devote as much time to writing or thinking about writing as I'd like, but I'm considering a, a prequel to, to Mingo that would examine the land grab in the coal fields and the initial, initial disruption uh, caused by the arrival of the coal companies and the railroads. It would uh, delve into the backstory of Ma and Pa that only gets passing mention in Mingo, uh, as well as the 1902 strike that uh, led to the death of, of Pa's brother uh, and his daughter, Derwood and Bascom's sister. But I'm also looking for material in a, a 
trove of letters from my father's side of the family. His mother was one of five sisters. Uh, they were, according to my mother, they were very outspoken and liberated for their time. Uh, my mother came from a more traditional family and she was enthralled by these liberated women born in the 1800s who didn't conform to the conventions of their day. And so I have a lot of these letters were written amongst, uh, amongst and between these sisters, uh, one of whom was a, a, dance, a, a dance member in a famous troupe in the early 1900s, and then ended up running a, a finishing school in New Zealand and, and was in the Blitzkrieg in, uh, uh, in London during World War II. Another sister was a public school teacher in New York City in the early, early late 1800s, early 1900s. And my grandmother was uh, trained as an artist and a nurse at Columbia University in New York. So I'm hoping I might find something in those letters that will lead me to, uh, to another uh, story uh, uh, that uh, readers will want to want to read. Well, thank but you. Whatever it is, I, I plan to keep writing. Thank you so much for being on the show. And we enjoyed your book. Deidre, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.